Salut! That's for all my French listeners out there. I know there are probably so many of you across Canada and internationally, I hope. Um, hi, it's me, Brett, the Anxious Gay. And here I am doing another Anxious Gay podcast for y'all and mostly for myself. I really realized that having a creative outlet during all of this, especially during lockdown and quarantine, has been super, super helpful. Even if it's just making an Instagram video or posting a photo or reading a book or what I like to do, which is go for a long, long walk, try to get my steps in. And actually, my favorite thing to do is listen to a podcast and go for a long, long walk. And really just do my best to get outdoors and be in nature. Walk children in nature. That's just what I'm trying to do. You know, do you ever meet people who just don't know what anxiety is or have no clue or just think you're crazy because you can't do certain things or don't want to be in certain social situations? I actually once had this lover who, whenever I would kind of even talk about anxiety or like depression or being like, oh, you know, I'm in bed, I don't want to leave, blah, blah, blah. He was just like, oh, you know, you just got to, people just need to go outside. They just need to get up and go outside and be in nature and be in the wilderness. And I was like, yeah, but what about, you know, when you don't even want to get out of bed? Like that shit happens. That shit is real. And sometimes you need extra help for that or you need to talk it out or you need to, you know, there's medications and all this kind of stuff. So just saying, I get it. I've been that person many times. I mean, I do agree that, you know, going outside for a walk is wonderful and hopefully will help. But there are, there's always situations where you need that extra help. You need someone else to talk to or someone to lean on. I have been staying indoors so much lately and I've been watching a lot of stuff. Recently watched all of The Vow, which was wild. If you don't know much about it, it's about this group called Nexium that was this this marketing company kind of thing that offered personal and professional development seminars and it was pretty much like this pyramid thing and the members would work their way up and then eventually it was revealed that at the very top the main guy Keith was making this sex cult where he would brand women and it's 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 I can't even talk about it it is too crazy to believe you have to watch it absolutely wild i'm obsessed with cult stuff i love all the stuff about jonestown and this was pretty intense i actually know and worked with someone who (laughs) was involved in nexium i'm not going to go into details but they were spotted in the vow and it's it's just unbelievable to know someone who might have been a part of that. Anyway, we're on to the next documentary about it called Seduced, which I think is actually a little bit more interesting because they have cult specialists and people who study these kinds of things and they kind of explain things a little bit better. So my roommate and I are really getting into that. Just more cult stuff, more things to watch during a quarantine, during COVID-19. I reached out to Darren Stein, the director of Jawbreaker, GBF, and I really, really wanted to talk to him. Jawbreaker is one of my favorite teen films of all time. I actually went as Courtney Shane in the end of the film for Halloween one year. A photo I'll probably post to my Instagram with this podcast so everyone can take a look. 
the movie's phenomenal. It's so gay. It's so queer. So is Darren. We get into all the different topics. We dive deep into Jawbreaker, the film, and also him growing up and his life, making films, being gay. I had a lot of fun talking to him, and I think we, I think we had a great conversation. Uh, the wonderful thing about him is that he's he was very confident, and you know we didn't talk too much about anxiety or anything like that. But we did talk about you know the pressures of being in film and being on set. So we get into all the kind of stuff. And Darren is like I think of him as one of the kings of the teen film. He's worked on all the like GBF as a teen film, Jawbreaker, and it just really put me in this like high school vibe. And I decided to pierce my ear. I don't even know if I'm doing these things anymore because I actually want to or just have something to do. But I got this little kit online. If you just Google, like, pierce your ear at home. I'm not recommending it. Or, I mean, it's fine, but if you want to. But this is not an endorsement. I <laughs> got this little plastic thing with a little stud in it. And it comes and it's sterile. And I decided to whip out the ring light, line it up, and push. <laughs> I actually made a funny little video about it and posted it on my Instagram. At first, I thought the whole thing fell out and I screamed. And then I realized, oh, wow, it looks really cute. I've got this little gold stud in my ear. And I'm going to turn that into a dangly earring. I'm, I think I'm going to dive into that 80s girls just want to have fun, George Michael, the Lost Boys vibe, and that's just what I'm gonna be, you know, with my mullet and the earring. It's all, it's all coming back. It's all coming back, all coming back to me now. Here's my conversation with Darren Stein. Hope you enjoy. Darren Stein is a phenomenal filmmaker. He's directed queer films like GBF and cult classic Jawbreaker. We talk about using filmmaking as an escape while going to an all boys school. You know, when you're a gay, a queer kid, and you're in this sea of like masculinity where sports and all those things are like give you power, it's not easy. How icon Parker Posey responded to his Jawbreaker script. On the back, it was like, Dear Darren, loved your script. I have nothing high school left in me. And the influence that Jawbreaker has had on the queer community, especially drag queens. It is drag. It's funny because drag queens love the movie. And to me, it's like, that's like the highest compliment I can get because I love drag queens. Hi, Darren. Thank you so much for coming here and coming here on my Zoom meeting to talk to me. Hey, Brett. It's good to see you. It's good to see you in person. I know. This is so nice. I'm. How's LA? LA is sunny. It's impossibly gorgeous today. I mean, it's it's really a perfect, beautiful Saturday. So it's 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 really it's really great. I was just saying that um, here it is going to be dark in probably about an hour because of daylight savings time, and it's uh, chilly and the sun is setting. So same. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for coming here. I uh, how is quarantine going for you? What is what are things like in LA right now? Well, we just we just got the word that we have this new like shorter uh, stay at home order happening. Okay. That just was announced yesterday. So we can no longer, you know, eat at restaurants, not even outside. Mm-hmm. And I guess we, we shouldn't be socializing and mm-hmm. that whole thing. So it's, I guess it's pretty, um, there's a lot of uh, incidents here, which is, which is scary. Um, but I personally, you know, haven't, haven't known that many people who have it. I have one friend that I call patient zero. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> but he got it. He lives in LA, but he got it in New York, you okay. know? And he, uh, yeah. So, but he was one of the very first people in LA to get it. He was in the hospital, never on a respirator, but it was, it was, it was, he said he felt like he was dying. So oh was my God. Crazy. Yeah. Shit. Yeah. We've, uh, we just went back into lockdown. Like we were like full lockdown for a bit at the beginning and then things got way better and our numbers were like down to very little and now they've spiked again. So we're back in the like, no going into malls, no shopping unless it's necessity and all that kind of stuff. Wild times. <laughs> yeah. These times are, uh, a, a total trip, but I've been getting some writing, writing done. So that's good. I was going to say, yeah. What have you been up to? Have you been like, watching a lot of stuff, writing a bunch of stuff? Well, I'm currently adapting a, a YA novel uh, as a feature oh, film, which cool. is pretty exciting. Um, it, it's called Where I End and You Begin, oh. uh, which is the title of a, a Radiohead song. Okay, and I was going to say, sounds yeah. like a Saturday night. <laughs> yeah, right? That sounds kinky. I've, I've forgotten what that is, <laughs> what, what those nights are. <laughs> Same. It's uh, it's pretty wild. It's a cross gender body swap in high school. But what happened is, is the girl's kind of a crazy like rocker, kind of insane chick, and the guy is like very internal and more like to himself and quiet. But he has a crush on her best friend, and she has a crush on his best friend. And they're like, hey, well, while we're in each other's bodies, let's help the other get the best friend, get the friend, so we can have a prom day because we're gonna switch back before prom. Oh my god, <clears throat> I love that. Yeah. So it's gets into some really interesting places dealing with sexuality and gender because he is her and ends up sort of hooking up with his best friend as her. Oh. And she ends up making out with her best friend as him. And, you know, he kind of realizes he might be bisexual through being her. And it just kind of expands. It's, 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 it's kind of a, a gender, a battery pushing uh, film in the guise of a John Hughes movie. I love that. Those are like all my favorite things all rolled into one. <laughs> yeah, and it's got a big epic prom at the end. Oh. And wow, there's even a production of Twelfth Night in it. It's kind of crazy. <laughs> okay, that's wild, but that sounds like a great time, way to spend your time. It's a lot of fun. Yeah, it's it's great. And, you know, it's, you know, it's, I really hope it gets made because it would be like, it would be like a really great third sort of trifecta, trif- teen trifecta. <laughs> His Jawbreaker and GBF both end in these big epic prom scenes. Totally. And this this one has one too. So I think I would love to have that have that joy in the club, you know? And you're kind of the king of that. And I definitely want to get into that and talk to you about the high school film and everything. But first, I kind of want to know a little bit about you personally. Like, what was your growing up situation like? What was your high school like? Um, it was interesting. I, <laughs> I grew up in Encino. You know, mm. in the valley, like blocks away from Michael J- the Jackson compound. Oh wow! <laughs> yeah, so I went to like Encino, League, Encino Little League, where Tito Jackson was a coach, and <laughs> Net Funicello worked in the concession booth. Oh my god! It was surreal. Yeah, I bet. And I was the gay kid who didn't want to be there to begin with. So I was like chewing my glove in outfield, you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I was a pretty happy kid, you know. Um, very into like very precocious, like very into like. Rocky Horror from age seven or eight. Right. And discovering, you know, Kiss and like, you know, drawn to horror from a very early age and um, new wave music. I was kind of like this one of these kids who knew who they were very young. And then it all went kind of sideways, not sideways, but my parents sent me to an all boys school from seventh grade to 12th grade called Harvard, uh, which is now now called Harvard Westlake. It's like like one of the leading prep schools in Los Angeles in the country. And it was just super rigorous, academically sports-oriented. 
And boys, you know, when you're a gay, a queer kid, and you're in this sea of like masculinity where sports and all those things are like give you power, it's not easy. So what ended up happening was I made movies in my cul-de-sac in Encino, high in the hills of Encino. Mm -hmm. And there are a bunch of kids there who I became close with and we became this kind of like troop and I could also kind of boss them around because they were three years younger than me. <laughs> so I started making movies and I, and I totally like lost myself into the world of, of making movies and I, and I didn't, while not having a conventional social life from age, say, 12 to, you know, 17. Really? Okay. So you kind of like, movies were your escape right away. Yeah. Because, you know, I was so, I was either studying or, go, or, or, or watching movies, going to the movies, renting, renting videos from the video store, you know, the John oh. Hughes films. I mean, I'm sorry, the John Waters films. Okay. And the John, the John Hughes films I was actually seeing in theaters. <laughs> um, but yeah, it was, it was cinema was like sort of like my escape from all that, you know? And then when I went to NYU after high school, that's when I sort of blossomed socially. Like I didn't even get drunk for the first time until like, you know, I think it was sophomore year of college. Wow, that's so fascinating because here you are writing all of these like so relatable high school films and like high school moments and stuff. And you're like, you didn't even blossom socially until NYU. Yeah, which is weird. I mean, I, I, I mean in my head, I was fully blossomed. <laughs> <laughs> in my bedroom, you know what I mean? <laughs> totally, totally. Yeah. I love that. So what were some of the things you were watching? What were the things that stick out in your mind? Um, like I said, Rocky Horror was the very first movie that sort of like rocked my universe. Mm -hmm. um, and then I was just seeing, I had a subscription to Fangoria, so I was very much into anything horror. Yeah. You know, I remember seeing The Thing in the theater. I went in the sixth grade seeing Emilyville Horror Part 2, even having Ooh. this girl sit on a date when I was like 10. I remember <laughs> having a girl sit on my lap and how kinky that was. Um, I love it. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I wasn't a huge TV watcher because my mom and dad, my mom and dad were kind of like not into TV. And so like their big show was 60 Minutes. Oh, was wow. Like, yeah. So when I heard that, I knew it was yeah. like time for bed when I was a kid on a Sunday. It was like that dour feeling, you know? But yeah, no TV. But, we, but the thing is, I did have the Z channel. And the Z channel was the very first cable station only available in Los Angeles. Oh. And it was like having a film festival in your house, you know? And so, and the way they programmed it was week by week. So one week would be like all Fellini. One week would be all like Ken Russell. One week would be all, I don't know, David Cronenberg. Um, and so as a, as a kid, I saw, you know, Bob Fosse, all that, you know, all that jazz, all the Cronenberg films. Oh my God. Fury, the Bahama, the Bahama films. And then I was also exposed to stuff like, what, like, like uh, gay movies. Like, um, what was the New York one? Uh, not, not prick up your ears. It was in New York. It's one of the seminal East Village. Steve Buscemi's in it. Oh, Parting, oh. Parting, Parting Glances. Mm -hmm, yeah. Mm -hmm, yeah. So I remember like as a teenager going downstairs, plugging my headphones into the TV <laughs> so, nobody, so I could listen to it in my ears and like watching Parting Glances like on a DL. Oh my God. I love that. I feel like everyone has that moment with something, you know? It's like, what was that secret thing you were watching? <laughs> I love sure. it. Yeah. You mentioned your family. What were your parents like? Were they... My, my dad... Um, worked at his parents' film lab. So my, my, oh. my grandparents started a boutique motion picture film laboratory in Hollywood in the 60s. So I was awesome. always around film my whole life, actual celluloids. Like my dad would come home from work and the first thing he would do is wash his hands because he had chemical, little chemicals all over them from having his hands in chemical baths, you know? 
Oh my God. I love that. So you were like in it right from the start. I was like, I remember my dad brought home at the dawn of video. They got into, into telecine, which is transferring film to video. And so he brought home like a three quarter inch tape of like the hunger and like alien, the first alien. Oh yes. And I remember I wanted to see alien in the theater, but I was 10 or nine or eight. I think it was like 1978 or 79. No, I was like eight or nine. And he's and I couldn't go, but I was like, I I, I had the the heavy metal graphic novel. I, I, I had, I knew exactly what I, mean. I had the whole film mapped out in my head. <laughs> and then I watched it as a kid on this three quarter inch cassette and had to go on two cassettes because the, the, these cassettes were massive. And they only held 60 minutes or whatever. God. And I remember when I got to the chest burster scene, I had to like watch it. I literally had to watch it frame by frame. because I was so just, just disturbed by it and terrified by it. You know, what do you think it is about those movies about, or about like horror that really draws you and also like a lot of queer people. I feel like queer people love horror. Yeah, because it's the otherness. I think that we're all made to feel like a monster to a certain extent, or we mm-hmm. f- ourselves feel like a, a creature because we have these forbidden desires. Um, and we grew up in a world that's not, not designed for us. Right? We're like, it's like, it's like, it's like being Frankenstein when, he, when he's running around the countryside or whatever. Mm-hmm. I mean, the monster. A lot of gays uh, really um, like resonate with the final girls, with the, the final girl and and all the slasher films. That's not oh, me. I, I, I'm not that gay. I'm like, I'm more like the alien, like, me, like <laughs> shove my like, whatever. <laughs> um, but yeah. <laughs> yep. Shove it wherever. Keep going. Yeah, yeah, I do like, I do like, you know, orifices and, and things of that sort. All the phallic imagery of the alien films is much appreciated. Totally. Um, <laughs> I love that. I always think of that too. I, I was, talking about this with someone recently and just the idea of the final girl and that the final girl usually like pays attention and I feel like a lot of the times gay people queer people we pay attention because we're kind of fight or flight all the time Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. or at least we were when we were younger you know and so I kind of feel like a lot of the time that's how we relate too. it's like yeah she's I mean I wish I was off fucking someone in high school but I wasn't so I'm paying attention to the killer who's gonna kill us all yeah and she's usually like the hot girl <laughs> you know, so that's a lot of gays want to be that so yeah. yeah there's a lot going on there that is um you know relatable totally do you remember like uh one of your first celeb crushes so oh this is so embarrassing like <laughs> it's so random and bizarre but it, like I said I was a precocious child I don't, I, don't know. I don't know if you want to hear like a child's crush, but like I was really a gay child's crush. Um, the Fonz from Happy, Day, Happy Days. Oh my God. I thought he was really sexy. That's amazing. I love that. Yeah, that and he has a black leather jacket, like the slicked back hair. I just thought he was real like stuff. Totally, totally. John Travolta was one of mine in Greece. Like that was just, oof. Oh, just yeah. John greaser. Travolta, yeah, he was, he was so hot. Like all those greasers were really cute. I mean, even Jeff Conaway is really cute, you know? I know, I know. And he was in your movie. Um, (laughs) I actually, you've had a couple of my crushes because Freddie Prince Jr. was one of my like actual first teen heartthrob crushes. I just made a a, a 2K transfer of Sparkler. Really? I should have sent you that link before we did this. Oh my God. Yes, you should have. I'll send it to you afterwards. Oh my God, please. I would die. Oh my God. I know Freddie is... I mean, he was one of the first people that I looked at. And I used to be like, what did I tell my friend? Oh, I used to just be like, I just thought he was really cool. I thought he was such a cool guy. And I was like, yeah, because I wanted to sleep with him. So he's actually not cool. He's actually not cool at all. Um, <laughs> Go he's on. Very, he's very handsome. Yeah. yeah. 
<laughs> not cool at all. Okay, I'll take it. No, I mean, listen, I, that, that just sounded so bitchy, but like, just being real. Yeah. No, that's what we're but here. That was for. a while ago. I mean, he was super young back then. I mean, we we made Sparkler back in nineteen, like it was like nineteen ninety five, ninety six, ninety seven. Mm-hmm. I'd say ninety six. So that was like, yeah, he was just. I think he had just done the House of Yes. Oh, I love House of Yes. Yeah, that's a great <laughs> film. Yeah, Parker Posey. Oh, always a Parker Posey. Stand. I am writing a film. I am writing a film for Parker right now, which is really exciting. Yeah, I love that. I mean, she's not attached. She doesn't know about it yet, but she will. <laughs> but she you will. Know, I actually gave when we were making job when when I first wrote Jawbreaker, I saw Parker at a gay bar in LA, mm. and I went up to her and I was like, "Oh my god!" I had this movie called Jawbreaker. Blah blah blah. blah. She's like, sent it to me, and she like wrote her address in New York on a bar napkin. Oh my god! Yeah, and I sent her the script for the role of Courtney. Oh wow! And she sent me back a few weeks later. I got back a postcard. It was like a postcard with a '70s image of Neil Diamond on the cover. Uh-huh. And on the back, it was like, "Dear Darren." Loved your script. I have nothing high school left in me. But if, <laughs> but if you were to cast this a la American Graffiti where everyone's in their 30s and balding, give me, count me in or something. <laughs> That's a great response. I love that. Yeah. <laughs> Parker in those movies. Oh, sh- I love all those Christopher Guest films. Oh, I say. God, they're so good. They're so good. So, I kind of want to watch, I want to watch Lost in Space just for her, but it's like, you know that Netflix show? Have you watched yeah, it? Yeah, someone. No, no. My, I was just talking to someone about it, and they were like, "Parker Posey is in it as like the villain or whatever, and is so good." And I'm like, "Yeah, okay, that you sold me. I'll, I, I'll watch her do anything." Yeah. Like I just recently watched Party Girl again, and I'm just like, "Oh, this movie." Uh, Party Girl's so good. I love it. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> Moving on. How did you start getting into film? Where you started actually working on sets and making films. I went to NYU for film school mm-hmm. and I made a bunch of short films there. And then, you know, I worked on other people's films and then I started interning. I was like an intern on like Army of Darkness. Oh my God. And Raimi film and getting a little job. I was an intern on, the, on that search for signs of intelligent life in the universe that, that um, Lily, Taylor, Lily Tomlin film that they, like a film play that they did. So just be on sets and stuff. And then, but the short film that I made in my thesis film, like kind of my final big film I made in NYU got me an agent. Oh, wow. Cool. Yeah. When I was like a junior in college. So I was guessing, I guess it was, it was, it was sort of like it happened pretty, I kind of, you know, made shit happen pretty fast. Cause I, and then my first film Sparkler, I wrote Sparkler and Jawbreaker sort of back to back. Okay. In the five years that I graduated from college, I was trying to get a film made, you know? Totally. I remember, those, I remember those five years feeling like an eternity, like, oh my God, I'm never going to make a movie. And I wrote Sparkler, I couldn't get that made. Then I wrote Jawbreaker, I couldn't get that made. And then these producers liked Jawbreaker, but they didn't have the, they couldn't raise enough money for it. So we, we made Sparkler, which is more of a, like a 90s indie road trip movie. Totally. And so yeah. I just got Sparkler, and we got, this, we got this big casting director on board. And he got us, you know, Park, we, we got this great cast. You know, we had Park Overall, isn't it? And mm-hmm. Veronica Cartwright, Grace Zabriskie, you know, Jamie and, Jamie and Freddie. Oh, and yes. then that film premiered at the Hamptons Film Festival. And, you know, the rest was, and then we started making, and then I started just writing and directing, you know? Yes, <laughs> just started writing and directing. I love it. Yeah. Where did, like, the ideas for these films come from? Where did the idea of Jawbreaker come from? Jawbreaker, I think, well, originally I just wanted to write a horror movie. Mm-hmm. I was just really obsessed with horror and I started, I was like, well, you know, I'm going to start writing this thing about these girls who accidentally kill their friend when they, when they kidnap her on her birthday. Cause I mean, once again, I was a queer boy going to all boys school, didn't have the girls. So I had this very um, fervent fantasy life about what girls would do, you know? And right. Yeah. I had the John Hughes films and I had like John Waters movies and 
you know, Heather's and, and anything I could get my hands on, you know, Elm Street. Totally. But these girls used to kidnap each other. I thought it was so weird. And I'm like, okay, what if one of them dies? That could be a horror movie. Yeah. So that's how I started Jawbreaker as a horror film. And then as I started writing the dialogue, it became much more Heather's, Heather's-esque, you know, with the bitchy girls and all that. Yeah. And, you know, so that's why I think Jawbreaker is so macabre. And I think that's part of why Jawbreaker has gone on all these years because it has that sort of like macabre underbelly, which is kind of unusual for a film of that that genre yeah absolutely and you i also heard you say once every good teen movie needs a dead body i totally agree i think of movies like even just like don't tell mom the babysitter's dead and like it, it's so true or like even stand by me which i know is not teen but like it's it's coming that of age. Coming, of age, that yeah. coming of age film it's it's wonderful and i agree and this was done in such a different way where like they're the reason for it like the girls yeah, I, I wanted it to be a girl-centric world. Like, I, I've always loved movies like the Russ Myers stuff, like Beyond the Valley of the Dolls and Vixen and Faster Pussycat Kill Kill and, of course, the John Waters movies. So, yeah, I wanted it to be a, a girl-centric world where they were almost like Amazonian. They were kind of, like, out of this world a little bit. They, Yeah, they they really are. And it, it it's, it's like you took everything you knew and then you just kicked it one step further, right? It's yeah. really, like, drag. Like, it, it feels... Yeah. Like the looks, the colors, everything. It's gorgeous and it's very drag. It is drag. It's funny because drag queens love the movie. And to me, it's like, that's like the highest compliment I can get because I love drag queens. And so I think the fact that I love drag queens so much indicates, it just shows why I made Jawbreaker because they were essentially, <laughs> essentially drag queens, I guess. You know? I mean, even when we were casting it, we knew that the girls had to have that heightened quality, you know? And they all do. They all, like, and you do have all of these actors in it that have such just choosing them for the film was so wonderful because they all have these like different backgrounds and or ended up becoming these like teen sensations in all these different ways like how how was it getting rose to do the film well the the studio gave me a, a they said if you can get a b or c actress i'll make the film and it was either like kate winslet natalie portman and rose mcgowan well couldn't get the other two so we got and we got we got rose and I remember thinking, and then, but I remember see, seeing Doom Generation and being completely fascinated by her. Mm-hmm. Like, comp- I went to a screening of it uh, before it came out. I was like, um, and I was like, obviously a fan of Gregor Rockies. I was like, who is this girl? She's fucking luminous and like yeah. fascinating, fascinating. And I, of course, she had always been on my list of people to play Courtney, but like, I kind of was not going straight there because I thought it was almost too obvious. Mm-hmm. But I guess it was meant to be because. We, we had coffee and she, you know, she was like an hour and a half late, but, then, <laughs> but she came looking fucking gorgeous, like beautiful. Like she, this is the kind of girl who like, like does not, she's very old Hollywood. She doesn't leave her house without like a full face of makeup and the hair is done, like blown out. And right. it's like being with a movie star. Um, but a cool, like our generation person. Totally. And we just completely like, we're immediately, you know, on the same page. So it was great. It was like having, it was like sort of like meeting a, lo- a long lost family member or something. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> totally. I love that. And I, I feel like she has such a look to her and even just, even the way she speaks, like I'm always so pulled in by like when she can get her voice deep and stuff too. I'm always like, what is it? There's like a line where she says, oh, what is it? She's like, I thought it would be fun. And even just the way she says fun, I, I can hear that all the time. Like I know what that, I know that Kate, like, that's Rose in that film. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's just weird how I, a lot of times directors, filmmakers talk about film being spiritual. 
and they're bringing this kind of like magic to it. And I think that's true because when you cast a film, it will attract the right actor. You know, certain actors are doing another movie, they're not available. Certain mm -hmm. actors pass on the script. Certain actors, you know, so aren't even, can't fly in in time for the audition, whatever. But it's like you find, the right person finds the movie. And in a Jawbreaker, I think certain, Rose is such an indelible part of that movie that it was, it was like a 90s moment for sure. And like Rebecca is yeah. so good and just like went on to be like the murderer in Urban Legends. <laughs> yeah, Rebecca's incredible. Like still a very dear friend and just the loveliest person imaginable. Uh, I love her. And then Julie Benz is, is, is a really a great girl as well. And obviously she went on to become Dexter's wife. But also for me, Julie Benz is Darla from Buffy. Right. And I, she actually walked into a store I was working in in Toronto once. And I would look and, you know, like, I just like had that double, I'm like, that's someone. I don't know. And then as soon as I heard her say anything, I was like, that's Julie Benz. Oh my God. She's stunning. And she's so funny. And what people don't know about her totally, she's hilarious. Well, you know, I was watching your, um, you had posted the like uh, Jawbreaker Diaries clips and there's just like moments with her and I'm just like, this is just so fun to see because she's always just so serious and everything. And I was like, this is adorable. <laughs> she's, she's so adorable and so lovely and funny. And she hasn't gotten the chance to do like, in Jawbreaker, you see a little bit of it. Mm -hmm. And that's why, that's why I cast her because like she came in and she made that character come to life. Totally. Because sometimes, sometimes the... Second in command is not the most exciting role or whatever. Mm -hmm. But one of my things with her, like, listen, you're like the heavy, like you're the you're like the muscle. Like you're yeah. and like where and whereas Courtney's like this like Machiavellian, like, you know, manipulative leader, you're like more dangerous in a way because you're just you're kind of a killer yourself. Like you're gonna just do something and not think about it. <laughs> <laughs> That's so true. It's so good. Yeah. Get her, Foxy. Like, it's get her, Marcy. It's so good. I love it. Get her, Marcy. Yeah, it's so funny. And you know, it's weird. Like, people know every line from that movie. Like, I can hear, you know, people people can quote it front to back. My pussy and my crack. You, know? you made, you, it's because it's, it's their own language. Like, it's, it's creating this whole world. And it, it's, it sticks with, especially us gay kids. We're watching this movie and we're just like, I love the way that they're talking. I want to be like them. <laughs> I'm gonna say I'm gonna say these lines at school, and maybe no one knows what it's from. Maybe I can pretend I made it up. <laughs> the fun funnily, that's how that's how I felt when I saw Heather's. Yeah. See, when I saw Heather's in the theater, I was like, oh my god, I want to say every word in this movie. That's so very gaggy, <laughs> gaggy gently with a chainsaw. You know, it's like all of that was formative for me. But I and, and listen when I and when I wrote Jawbreaker, when I wrote Jawbreaker, even when I, I never deigned, I never deigned, deigned to come close to have the brilliance that is Heather's. Like I, that is the grand supermother of, the, of them all, you know? So it's like, I still to this day respect that movie. Oh, but totally. I know that, yeah. But I know that Mark Waters, who wrote it, not, no, he directed it, but Daniel Waters, who wrote it, didn't like Jawbreaker, because I think he thought that Heather, that I was ripping off Heather's, which was never the intention. I was inspired by Heather's. Yeah. I mean, if, if anything, Mean Girls is more of a ripoff of Jawbreaker than Jawbreaker is of Heather's. But I mean, like, you really tapped into something there, especially with the, it, 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 it's so 90s too and this otherworldly kind of language it's, it's it's its own thing and i mean i love it i, I say that shit all the time <laughs> it was like i was it was it was exciting because it was i was able to just get deep into my queer head queer head and just go with it and by the way everyone in hollywood all the studios passed on that script it was not easy to get that made really no every major studio passed on it it was Columbia TriStar Home Video, the home video division that actually financed the movie. 
Wow. Did they so, think it was too edgy or too dark or it didn't yeah, fit totally. a genre enough? Like the movie is totally, there's no, there's no, like, there's no moral censor to the movie. Totally. <laughs> it's like, you know, court, you're, 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 you're voted, you're rooting for Courtney kind of. Yeah. I mean, the closest characters to heroes are like Fern and, and Julie, but you know, the movie really kind of like gets delicious and exciting when we're with Courtney. Yeah. You know, it's, it almost feels like the Julie Zach love story. It's like, okay, let's get past this. We can get back to Courtney. <laughs> what is Courtney doing? Yeah. yeah what is Courtney up to? <laughs> <laughs> Whose cigarette kind of is she pulling out of their hand and throwing to the ground, <laughs> right? Yeah. I remember we shot that. I told Julie, I told Judy, I was like, okay, now in this, in this scene, when we shoot this take, blow smoke in her face and see what <laughs> she does. So that was all like, you know. Okay. I love that. And I, I got to admit, like, I listened to a couple interviews with you and you talk about how there was like, the girl, the women, the girls were kind of in character, even when they weren't uh, in a scene. <laughs> and of course, like, why wouldn't they be? It's fun. And you have a gay director who's fucking laughing at all, who's like encouraging everything. Um, and you have like, you know, hair and makeup who are in, in costume design who are like going for broke. Right. So these, you know what I mean? So it's like these girls will come out with bigger and bigger hair, you know, until the end when Violet has like this massive, like, Margaret Thatcher do or something. You know? <laughs> That's kind of funny too. It's like, you're like, all right, I'm just kind of pushing the pieces, seeing everything. Look, I work in reality TV. That is all we do. Right. So we just sit back and you're like, well, you know, and then that's when you get those uh, great performances. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I also wanted to talk to you about, I mean, Courtney, obviously, but, and I mentioned this on Instagram and I always talk about this and I feel like it is such a pivotal part of this film is the big stick scene. <laughs> Where did this come from? How did you do it? When you wrote that, were you just like, every closeted gay boy is going to be masturbating to this scene? That's exactly why I wrote it. Yeah. Yeah, like that scene, I was consciously writing the scene I wanted to see yeah. when I was a kid. That was never in the movie for me. Like, I wanted to see that. And I couldn't do it overtly with two guys. Right. And so basically, Courtney is like becoming the do- you know the dominant, you know, the kind of, she's kind of like, you know, a gay guy in that scene. Yeah. Because she she makes him give, essentially give her head. Like if she had a penis, well, it it was the big stick. Yeah. And he gets into it and he likes it. And yeah, people, it's a very provocative. And then also I I like it because like the big stick is like a jawbreaker, you know, it's a jawbreaker-esque candy. I was fascinated by the big stick as a kid. We had those growing up. It was a Mm -hmm. a certain popsicle called a big stick, phallic, delicious it's the mm. size of pe- you know roughly the size of a penis mm. or you know nice kind of big uh, penis I guess. Yep. <laughs> a larger member but frozen um but <laughs> and rose i think was super excited to do that scene because she can get into that kind of stuff as well and understand and isn't afraid of it mm-hmm. and i think what makes that scene exciting as well is the fact that her room is so retro in 50s and 60s and she's in this like baby doll dress and it just pl- it's playing with a lot of there's a lot going on, like time, time period-wise, as far as Connie Francis' lollipop lip song. Connie Francis, yeah. I remember one of the producers was like, there's another song we were thinking about in that, in that, in that um, scene, which was a male vocalist. And I was like, I like the female vocalist, because yeah, it's about her power. Yeah. And it's about lollipop lips. And then one of the producers, who was a heterosexual woman, was like, no, I like the male vocalist. And I'm like, sorry, girl, I got to trump you on this one, but yeah. we went with Connie Francis. Yeah, but it was, it was a very provocative scene, and... I'm very glad to have have it be uh, uh, immortalized. Oh, absolutely. And even the actor, Ethan Erickson, right? Like, that's 
I mean, also, uh, once again, my Buffy is showing, but he was the muscle hunk jock and Buffy. And so then to be able to like see that and go, oh, this like super sexy scene where he's like deep throating a popsicle is And he phenomenal. loved it. He was super into it. There was no, nothing weird. That, that was one of the, actually the easiest scenes in the movie to shoot. Really? Yeah. That's fascinating. So everyone was just like cool and like excited to do it because it was- Yeah, because there's just the two of them. He, they're both very hot people. Mm-hmm. They're very sexy. They both went for broke together. The production design, the bedroom was really exotic. So once you get on that, you can't tell, but the heart, it's like a heart-shaped red bed. Or, oh, it, it, like, the whole, it was supposed to be like Courtney's boudoir, you know? <laughs> totally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, it was, it was great. Oh, and that final line of just don't go, don't come. Oof. Genius. Come. I yeah, love and then, and then, and then, and then, and then the next thing, when the two cops come to the door, the door and the guy's like, are you Courtney Alishane? That was my boyfriend in my twenties. Really? Yeah. His oh. name was Tommy. I was with him from when I was 21 to 29. Oh, wow. And he's the one who did all the behind the scenes, you know, those Jawbreaker diaries. He mm-hmm. shot all that footage and then he played the cop. I had to just put him in the movie, you know? That is so cool. So what's that like, you know, you're directing this film, you can have your boyfriend around. I mean, you must have just been it was on cloud nine. <laughs> I was, yeah, part, part of it, it was a very interesting experience because part of me was on cloud nine, pinch me, oh my God, this is such an incredible experience. And the other part of me was like, holy shit, I got to make my days. The studio executives all hovering over me. We only have, the, the budget of the film was 3.5 million. Mm-hmm. When other films of that era were made for between seven and 15 million. And so I had to deliver a movie that looked as good as one of those for three th- a fraction of the price. Right. So there right. was a lot of pre- there was a lot of pressure on me. Do you have yeah? So when you feel that pressure, like, did you does that come out when you're on set, or is that something you're like, I'm leaving this at the door and I'm just going into a scene, or what? You have to leave it at the door. You yeah. have to like keep it keep it down. Listen, when you're on a set, like you're getting assaulted with a million questions from all over the place. You're the commander in chief. I was 26, 27 when I made that movie. I was so young, you know. But I think the fact that it's, you know, looks the way it looks and to the test of time is a testament to sort of the magic of the, of the experience. In your Sparkle, my first one, Sparkle, is really, I'm really proud of that as well. It's a, mm-hmm. it's a really heartfelt, sweet movie. It's much more of a character-driven piece. Mm-hmm. GBF, very proud of that. It's a really great film. It's super about something important, you know, about being yourself in high school. But out of those three movies, I would say Jawbreaker, you know, is, is probably the biggest achievement. But you'll have to see Sparkler. Let me know what you think. <laughs> oh, I totally will. I tried to, and I couldn't find it in yeah, Canada. Not- so <laughs> it, will, it will be streaming in, in months to come. Oh, amazing! Um, <laughs> and you know what? You talking about this being like your big, the big film, and I feel like you're all over it too. Like you're in every inch of this film. <laughs> um, and even just things like, I mean, PJ Souls is in it. Do I remember correctly? Did in the commentary was there like a longer scene with PJ that didn't? Yeah, I mean, it wasn't longer, but like when they walk in and they see Liz dead in bed, the camera kind of moves up very, very, very close to their faces. Okay. And I wanted to take it all the way to that point, which they do in the trailer. In the trailer, it actually goes really close to their faces. But I remember the executive who you know had final cut because the studio has final cut. Right. Was like, yeah, no, we don't want to. We don't want to be on their faces. It's too disturbing for a parent to find their kid like that. I'm like, um, yeah, but the tone of this is not that. It's hello. It's like it opens yeah. up a jawbreaker in her throat. <laughs> yeah. So the executive got weirdly squeamish around certain things. And I remember, you know, all those kind of cartoony sound effects that you hear throughout the film. Yep. I think that was the one of the ideas of the executive actually, because he wanted he wanted to he didn't, he didn't want the film to play so dark. 
Okay. So like lightening so, it up a bit with yeah, these like. So that ended up coming later. Yeah. Because I just mean like, I mean, and all the actors in the film too. I mean, like having Jeff Conaway, having people who were in Carrie, Halloween, Rock and Roll High School, like Grease, like these are just like pivotal films. Well, you know, Rock and Roll High School, Grease and Carrie were three of the, of my, the films that made me who I am, you know? Mm -hmm. So, you know, this movie is a love letter to Rock and Roll High School, to Grease. I mean, and to the John Waters films. Mm-hmm. and to carry you know it's all it's all over the dna of this movie like i and i forget how much like i remember I'll, I'll walk, the other the other day i was flipping through channels i came across carrie no it's not, not carrie i mean uh, grease and i was looking at someone's capri pants i'm like oh my god it's so jawbreaker and I'm like, no 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 jawbreaker's so grease this is for this is where it came from right but, but grease was a very big um reference and you know rizzo was a big reference for courtney so oh, it's like totally. that, that was that's all in there you know courtney's like rizzo meets you know, the Nancy Allen character from Carrie. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I love like, it. I, I'm yeah. also just like a huge Halloween fan. Like I was yeah. obsessed with the original Halloween. And I was like, I remember the first time watching it being like, she looks so familiar, but it was so quick. And then I think I listened to like commentary and everything. And it was like, well, that's PJ Souls. And I was like, oh my God. <laughs> I totally fangirled over her on set too. I, I, I have no, like, I will fangirl over someone if it's someone I'm really excited about. Like, I remember I went to the premiere of this documentary my friends make, Mansfield 6667, um, and Mary Warnall was there. And I was oh. like, oh my God, Togar sucks. And I totally, like, geeked out over <laughs> Rock and Roll High School and, like, Eating Raul and, like, Chelsea Girls and all of you know, her entire Warhol. Uh, why not? Yeah. Right? Like, you're like, yeah. these, are, these are the things that shape me. Yeah, the people, I think if you come in from a really authentic place, people really love it. Well, and okay, let's talk about that because, you know, the movie comes out, it's become this total cult classic. How do you feel knowing that you've done that for so many people and so many queer people, especially? I feel great. And that's why I totally engage with the fans and like collect the fan art and share it. I gotta, I'm the only one who's going to perpetuate that. Like there's no one else who's going to look after that brand. Mm-hmm. You know, like, you know that there is no official merch for Jawbreaker. There's, There's so that, many, so many opportunities. <laughs> there is, yeah, I mean, I mean, over the years, fans, I mean, you can go on to Etsy and find a million things, whatever. Right. Like, there's no, the studio has never put out any official merch. Like, you can go into an Urban Outfitters and get a craft t-shirt. That you yeah. can, but that's about to change because Mondo is putting out double album vinyl oh, in, the spring, in the spring. Yeah, that is. Job that is so cool. I wanted to talk to you too, actually, about the slow-mo walk because that is okay. just so iconic. And I just remember like, I because I went to film school here in Toronto and we had this assignment to do the cinematography assignment. And I remember we were supposed to do something with lighting and we were just like, fuck it, we don't know how to do that. We're just going to do our own version of a slow-mo walk. And I feel like it's such an iconic scene. And also just like, you really did play with all those kinds of things. Like the, when Rebecca Gerhardt's character, when the, oh, the voiceover is like, you know, Liz died and it's all the stills and she's kind of walking through it. And I just remember being like in my high school, someone, when someone passed away, like that's exactly how it was. It was mm-hmm. like everyone in like still like not moving and just listening and just taking it all in. Yeah. All those little tips and tricks are like my faves. <laughs> well, yeah, that was the, that, that whole sequence was a reference to like, I don't know, some uh, Hollywood musicals. Cause Jawbreaker, I always thought could, could have been a musical. Oh yeah. And it's, and it's really shot like a musical. Like that whole sequence where they're like rhyming, the, the rhymes they do when the bodies are being make, made over and she- Oh you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. The, you know, was written sort of like an iambic pentameter. It could have been sung through, it, it wasn't. But you know, we have since developed Jawbreaker as a stage musical. And now I'm 
hopefully going to turn that into, I'm going to pitch it as a series, a musical series to Netflix. Oh, that would be um, so cool. Yeah. I would love so, that. It, it's totally like, it has the look for it. it. I could totally see that happening. I love that film so much. Obviously, I can't stop talking about it. Um, <laughs> I also love GBF. GBF is so cool. You directed that film. And that to me was such a like fun, I almost wanted that movie to be a little more X-rated. Does that make sense? <laughs> yeah. Well, it got, it got an R rating. <laughs> really? R? Yeah. yeah. R? Oh my yeah. God. Yeah, because there's a lot of gay slang, like like a lot of gay slang, like RJs, HJs, BJs. All the good Js, yep. Gays. <laughs> and there's that thing about like, tastes like ass, and she's like, perfect for you. You know, there's just a lot of like, homo. It's just, and then there's that, I mean, it's, it's just, it was frustrating because there's no fuck met, uttered. Yeah. There's no nudity, no violence. And to get an R because of slang about gay sex was disturbing because slang about straight sex does not get you an R. No, happens all the time. That's so, so frustrating. I, yeah. So I spoke out about it. There was, there was an article in Entertainment Weekly about it. And yeah, there's a bunch of press I did about it because I was, I was not happy that it got an R rating. Well, yeah, I feel like if you did that now, I don't think it, like, would it get an R rating? Or I feel like you could, it could be even wilder, yeah. Yeah. you know? But yeah, it was a fun film. I really love the script that George Northey wrote because it was like it was just like, it was a teen film that I hadn't seen before, and that's what made it exciting for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and it came together really. It's just the kind of film. Certain films. Listen, I've written twenty screenplays. I've most of the things I've written have never gotten made. Mm-hmm. So GBF got made. Yeah, and you got to go with the ones that can find it. <laughs> you know. I- I was going to say, if you could give yourself some advice from when you were back making Jawbreaker, like after everything you know now, what would you say? There's nothing. I, 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 I don't know what I would say, honestly, because I don't, I don't think in that, in those terms, I think sort of like your destiny is sort of, you know, your life unravels the way it's meant to unravel. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it doesn't sound good. Not unravel, but like <laughs> unfold, unfold. Yeah, yeah, like everything happens yeah. for a reason. Yeah. Yeah. You know, <laughs> would, I, would I have loved to have made more movies? Of course. But like, you know, my stuff is a little more ultra. They're not as easy to get made. And I'm grateful I get to make the films I get to make, you know, and I will make more movies and hopefully TV shows and continue on, you know. That's so exciting. Did I see something about a GBF TV show or did I make that up? No, no. We had talked about it, but no. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. George, George, who wrote GBF, he and I developed Jawbreaker as a series for E, but that was a different, that was like a reboot. Oh, okay. And then we, wrote, then we, wrote, we sold another pilot to um, the CW, which is about celebrity spies, which is pretty fun. Oh my God, amazing. Yeah, so we, we've done a few things together. That's so great. And what, so what is next? What, what do you got going on? I have three or four projects that are all in different, you know, they're, any of them could go next, you know, once, <laughs> it depends on which one gets the green light first. Totally. It could be this, it could be this cross gender body swap I told you about. Yes. You know, I've got Brandon Flynn and Judy Greer attached to a movie that, that <sighs> could, it's an 80, it's an 80s AIDS story. Oh wow. That was written by Danny Pellegrino. Who does oh my God. Movie. Really? Yeah. I love Danny. I'm actually talking to him in a few weeks. <laughs> oh wow. Well, tell him that I, you know, that you talked to me. I totally will. Um, yeah, no, Danny wrote a great script that I, I developed over the course of six months. Then we got Brandon Flynn attached from 12, 13 Reasons Why and Judy for a mother-son story. Uh, <laughs> that film would be fantastic. So we're going to hopefully get that, get that out. You know, um, I've got Madeline Petch from Riverdale attached to a movie called Kill the Boy Band. It's like mm-hmm. fangirls who accidentally kill a member of a boy band. It's very jawbreaker with fangirls. Love that. But, you know, we've, we've had a hard time getting it made. So it's just hard to find the right people to finance things, you know. But I think that's so cool is like, you're like, you know what, I'm sticking to the shit that I can 
I'm good at and I know and it's my style and it's everything I'm doing and like fucking do it or not. Like I, I think that's amazing. That's awesome. Mm -hmm. Cool. Darren, where can people find you? Instagram, Twitter, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. It's just, I think my Instagram and Twitter the same. It's just at Darren Stein. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much for doing this with me. It was so nice to meet you and talk to you. It was fantastic meeting you as well. Thank you so much. I had the best time. Thank you, Darren. You too.